are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is David Guzik, and if we've never met before, I'm here on the YouTube channel on Thursday afternoons, at least West Coast in the United States time. I don't know what time it is for you in your particular time zone. And at 12 noon West Coast time in the United States on Thursdays, whenever I'm able to. Sometimes I'm traveling, sometimes I'm taking a week off. But we come together here for a time of question and answer on my YouTube channel. I want to give a special greeting to our TWR360 audience. TWR360 is that wonderful ministry from Trans World Radio, this group that has been doing such outstanding work for the cause of the gospel for so long, first with shortwave radio, which they continue to do, and then now through their online presence, TWR360. We're grateful for our partnership with them and uh, that we can have this program broadcast not only from the YouTube page, but also from their website through a link that we have with them. So welcome to our TWR360 audience worldwide, and to our global audience, just who meets us here on the YouTube channel. Very pleased that you're here. Today is the last Thursday of the year 2022, so this will be the last time that we gather together, and it's been a wonderful year of meeting together on these Thursdays. I do want to thank the people throughout the year who have filled in for me, my friend Pastor Bill Walden from Napa Valley, California, has filled in several times, as well as my friends uh, Lance Ralston, Chuck Musselwhite, and uh, Miles Benedictus. They've all been able to fill in at times when I haven't been able to make it, and so it's wonderful that they could do that. What we're going to do in just a moment is get to the questions that we have for today, but I do want to begin by saying Thank you so much for your prayers last week for my mother-in-law, Gunnel, in Sweden. Uh, she was in the hospital last Thursday when we got together. And to be honest, it did not look like she was going to be able to make it home for Christmas. And look, we're grateful for medical care that we get, but you always got to admit, it's a little bit sad to be in a hospital over Christmas when you might be home with family and loved ones. And really remarkably, beautifully. I'm sure that your prayers as a YouTube audience had something to do with it. Uh, God answered prayer and she was able to come home and celebrate Christmas with the family there in Sweden. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, not only do I want to thank you, but Gunnel messaged us and said that she wanted us to pass on her thanks. And you can continue to pray for her as she continues to recover from home. But praise the Lord, she's on the good track for recovery. Thank you for those prayers. All right, what we're going to do is today, this is just an Ask Me Anything day. We're not going to go to uh, a lead question. Oftentimes, I even say most of the time, we begin our program with a lead question, something that comes in from social media, by email. Maybe it was a question that we weren't able to get to in a previous week. But today, we're not doing that. Today, we're going straight to your questions, mostly because I didn't want to take the time to prepare a lead question, to be quite honest. I wanted to get right into it. So uh, let me begin with a question from Sean today, who asks his questions. I have a friend who thinks that he is a prophet. I think he is more predictive about future events, and that isn't biblical to me. What do you think? Well, Sean, I think you're correct in understanding that the biblical idea of a prophet isn't necessarily someone who foretells the future. The way that it's been expressed sometimes, and I suppose this is a fine way to sort of put it, is that biblically speaking, a prophet doesn't always foretell in terms of predicting the future, but he always does foretell uh, the heart and the mind of God. And I believe that God uses people today with the gift of prophecy. But Sean, I'll have you know, I, I am very suspicious and hesitant by anybody who would take the title prophet to themselves. Either they would take the title or receive it from other people. 
again, I, I want to emphasize, I, I am not a cessationist. I believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. And I do believe as well that God speaks through people and that the exercise of the gift of prophecy is valid for today. People can ask me questions on that if they like, that's fine. But in our present day, in the spiritual environment that we deal with, you have to admit, well, I'll just speak from my own experience. Maybe your experience is different. From my experience, just about everybody I've ever known who has taken or accepted the title of prophet has been really weird. And we just don't need that weirdness. So I, I like to emphasize with people that even though God speaks to people today, and even though God can speak through the gift of prophecy, he has in my life at times, that that's not the normative way that we seek God's word and God's will. We seek God's word and God's will through the Bible and just through living our daily life, believing that as we are not conformed to the world and transformed by the renewing of our mind, we will prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God, as Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says. So, the, the bottom line, just kind of being this, Sean, is that um, God may, if somebody wants to take on the title of prophet, then they need to be judged very strictly by that title. I, I would much prefer someone to say this, uh, Sometimes God uses me for the gift of prophecy more than saying, I'm a prophet. I think there's a whole different mentality between those two statements. One other thing. I said just a moment ago that I believe that God gives the gifts of the Spirit for today. I would make one exception with that. And even though this is not a gift that's detailed in the New Testament, it is nevertheless a gift that's clearly implied in the New Testament. And that is the gift to hear God perfectly. Friends, the gift of being able to hear God perfectly and understand and being able to transmit God's word perfectly, that ended with the first century apostles and prophets. Now, God speaks and God can't do anything that's not perfect. So the only way God can speak is perfectly, but for there to be an effective and perfect communication from God through a human vessel, not only does God's word have to be perfect, which it always is, but that individual has to be perfect. They can't add to the word. They can't take away from it. They can't misapply it. They can't mistime it, so to speak. So I do believe that nobody on the earth since the formative apostles and prophets in the Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 cents the foundation for the church given to us in the New Testament. Nobody since then has the gift of prophecy or the gift of, of being able to, let me rephrase it, nobody has the gift of being able to understand and transmit God's word perfectly in what we would call an inspired sense in the same way that the New Testament and the Old Testament are given to us. There is nobody who is speaking authoritatively and perfectly to the church as a whole. That ended with the apostles and prophets, even though I do believe that there's a place and there's a purpose for the gift of prophecy today. So I hope that helps you, uh, Sean. Let me go to the next question from Galen, who asks, if I don't have an unleavened wafer grape juice, can I take communion with, say, even a piece of bread and milk or regular cracker or perhaps even coffee if that's all that I have? Galen, that's a good question. And I think what we're talking about is both the ideal and then the less than ideal. Now, let me tell you, ideally, communion, the Lord's table, is celebrated in the community of God's people, such as on a congregational level, and it's celebrated with bread and wine or grape juice is acceptable. Look, most wine of the ancient world was considerably watered down. You could get drunk drinking wine, but you just had to work at it a lot harder than in today's alcoholic, uh, you know, environment with alcohol content in wine today. 
So I think grape juice is a fine substitute for wine. Ideally, that's how you're taking. Now, we can't always do the ideal. Maybe somebody can't go to church for whatever reason, and they can't receive the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table in the community of God's people. Well, they can certainly do it at home, and ideally at home, you're also doing it with bread. Now, there is a debate. Some people insist that if we take communion, the bread has to be unleavened. I don't think that that's a requirement, but it's certainly not wrong to do it with unleavened bread. You have the bread and you have the cup that is the wine or the grape juice or whatever somebody would use with that. Well, if you don't have bread, maybe you could use a cracker. Uh, If you don't have wine or grape juice, maybe you could use a substitute. Now, that's not ideal. That's not the way it should be done if you can do different. But if that's all you have, then that's all you have. There are some people who believe that it is sinful for people to receive communion at home without the supervision of an ordained minister. I have to say, I don't share that opinion. I believe it's perfectly fine for people to receive communion at home, as long as they also receive it in the community of God's people, if they are able to fellowship with other people. I don't think that Communion at home or as an individual replaces congregational communion, uh, unless by necessity, but it can be a fine supplement to it. Anyway, those are just some of my thoughts, Galen. I hope that helps you. Next question comes from Chris, who asks, what best describes our relationship with God? I had a friend who said that we had a partnership. I felt uneasy about that. Is it a slave, master, spouse, or child-father relationship? Chris, I can answer your question pretty directly just by simply saying, um, yes, it's all of those. All of those are included. There is a multifaceted aspect to our relationship with God, and God illustrates our relationship with him in many different ways. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. He is the master, and we are the slaves. He is the father, and we are his children. Uh, he is uh, our, our uh, elder brother, Jesus Christ being so, and we are the younger siblings. He is the husband God's people collectively, and in some sense individually, are the wife, the bride. All these images are used scripturally of God's people. So we can't limit it to any one particular illustration, but we just need to kind of take them as a whole and learn what we can from them. There's sort of a different dynamic present in each one of these relationships, something we can learn from. We, We learn something from the way God describes his relationship with us as he being the potter and we being the clay, even though the clay doesn't have much of a relationship with the potter. We learn something from the relationship of God being the shepherd and we being the sheep, and then in all these different relationships. So it's not that one excludes any of the others. These are like just different facets of a beautiful gem that we can look at and fills out the whole picture of who God is and how God loves us. So I hope that's helpful. I mean, which one is best? Well, which one do we need to hear at the moment? There could be somebody right now, what you really need to hear is that God is the potter and you are the clay. And there could be somebody else, what you really need to hear is that God is your father and you are his child. Again, we we have different places where these truths impact us, and that's one of the great works of the Holy Spirit, to take the ever-present Word of God and apply it to our specific uh, place. And so, what we don't want to do is, if somebody really needs to hear that uh, God is the shepherd and they're the sheep, we don't want to come and say, no, 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 that's not right. Uh, God is like your husband and you are like his bride. No, what you see, the two don't contradict each other. So again, uh, I hope that's helpful for you there, Chris. Next question comes from Daniel. 
how do you read Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, specifically verse 7, where it seems as though God is surprised that his people did not learn from his judgment of the surrounding nations and repent? Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Let me read that to you. I have cut off nations. Their forces are devastated. I've made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Well, Daniel, I see what you're talking about. There is a tone here. It's not specifically said, but certainly there's a tone in this prophecy of Zephaniah chapter 3, and you're just having me quote here verses 6 and 7, where God does seem sort of astonished or shocked or he's marveling at the fact that his people haven't learned the lessons of judgment from other nations around them. And and Daniel, I think what we're talking about here is to use a, a big word, We're talking about an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism uh, is expressing something in human terms when the thing being described isn't exactly human. In other words, we could say it like this. um, All the time we attribute human emotions and feelings and such to our pets. We say our cat is sad, our dog is gloomy, you know, whatever it could be. And and certainly, what we say about our pet, if we know our pet at all, it approximates human emotion and response, for sure. But, But do we really know exactly what's going on inside that pet and how close it is to what we feel as humans? That's a little bit unknown to us. So, such descriptions of our pets, it's not meaningless, But certainly, it's not fully descriptive as well. It's just expressing it in ways that we can all understand. Now, the same principle applies to the way that we talk about God. Sometimes we talk about God, and the Bible speaks about God, in human terms. And and Daniel, I hope you can appreciate, what other terms could we have to talk about God? God couldn't speak about himself in terms that only the angels could understand and communicate to that uh, to us. We, we couldn't understand it. Or in terms that only the divine could understand. We're not divine. So, because God has bowed down, stooped down to reveal himself to men and women through his word, there is naturally going to be an element of speaking in human terms, of anthropomorphism. And so, uh, I really think that that's what we have going on right now. Um, Hope that's helpful for you there, Daniel. Uh, Let me say a few things before I go on to the next question. Uh, First of all, thank you again, everybody, for praying for my mother-in-law, if you weren't with us at the very beginning. Just a beautiful answer to prayer. Our our, our YouTube folks prayed last week for my mother-in-law in Sweden who is in the hospital, and uh, she wonderfully, sort of surprisingly, was able to come home and have Christmas with the family, and she's recovering at home now, and she wanted me to say, and I don't mind saying, thank you for praying for my mother-in-law Gunnel in Sweden. That's number one. Number two, I want to say, just while we're still in the middle of the program, thank you. Thank you to everybody who... uh, just takes part in what we do with the podcast, with the online content, with the YouTube content. Thank you. And thank you especially to those of you who pray and some of you financially support our work as well. You know, the the work of Enduring Word is to disseminate, to publish, to, to put out materials helpful for evangelism and discipleship globally and absolutely free as much as possible. Now, we made a video. You can check it out here on our YouTube channel 
sort of a 2022 report. And I'm not going to go into the details, but I would just please recommend to you, maybe we can put the link in the details, or maybe uh, Devin can throw up that link in the uh, side chat, our year-end video that I put up just a few days ago. I really would want you to see that. I want you to see some of the amazing things that God is doing in and through this ministry, which just seeks to get out good Bible materials to a global audience in as many languages as we can. And our our translation work accomplished a lot in 2022. And we hope to accomplish even more, God willing, in 2023. So check out that video Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for those who are able to financially support. It's just a big help. It's a blessing. So anyway, I wanted to make sure I said that. And check out that year-end video. Okay, let me go to the next question here from Alisa, who asks, Have you ever felt like life is so hard? How did you deal with those feelings? Alisa, yes, I have felt that at times. And... One of the difficulties in dealing with those feelings, with those thoughts, and helping others to deal with those feelings and those thoughts, is that they can come from so many different sources. Look, let's face it. Some people are just born with a personality or a disposition that makes them more likely to feel and think that way. You know, it just people have different personalities. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing? Sometimes it's not so wonderful because sometimes people have unpleasant personalities or personalities that seem to be something of a burden. But we all have different personalities. And some of this can be just a matter of personality. Some of it can be a response to maybe ways that people have sinned against us. Maybe ways that we have sinned and gotten ourselves into trouble. Sometimes these feelings uh, that life is so hard have to do with physical things in our body. Maybe a sickness, an illness, or maybe just something's a little bit out of whack. Uh, Sometimes these feelings are very temporary. Sometimes they last a long time. So, Alicia, I've definitely had such feelings. And all all I can say is, I I find comfort in the Lord. Now, I'm a little cautious when I say that. Not because I don't believe it. Not because it's not true. It is absolutely true that I have found great comfort in the Lord. But sometimes people hear that and they think that what we mean when we say that is, here's some magic you know, a uh, Jesus dust that is just sprinkled over your problems and everything's better. There's really nothing like that. But there is hope. There is comfort. There is refuge in the Lord. And again, oftentimes God's answer isn't to take away all our problems. Sometimes he does that. Praise the Lord for it. But there's other times when God's answer is to give us greatest strength to bear up and maybe even to thrive under the problems. But listen, um, Alicia, I know what you mean. And all I can say is that, well, I try to follow the command of Scripture to be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. That's in Philippians chapter 4. Again, I'm not trying to say that that's a magic formula that takes away all your problems instantly. No, not at all. But it's giving me some peace in the middle of a storm, the, the ability to just hang on by my fingernails just a little bit longer, or to just receive God's kindness and goodness in the midst of a difficulty. Alicia, don't feel despair. We've all been there. Even the people that you look at and you think that they have very little reason to feel discouraged. Oh, they deal with discouragement. Uh, 
It's not always a rational thing at all. So look to the Lord, draw near to God, seek Him in the basics, prayer, His Word, uh, speaking with others about the great things of God, fellowship with other Christians if you're able to. These are foundational things that, again, I want to stress, I'm not trying to say at all that these take away every problem, but they give a foundation from which we can deal with our problems. And then you know what we need sometimes? We need more rest. We need more refreshment. That's what God did for Elijah when he was very down, very discouraged, didn't think he could go on. God had him sleep and eat some good food. Sometimes that's the most practical advice we can get. So, I hope that's helpful for you there, Alicia. Uh, Let me go on to the next question from Rosemary, who asks, I know the Bible says to lay hands on the sick to be healed or for any deliverance. Is that always necessary? Rosemary, no, it's not necessary. And the laying on of hands to pray for somebody should also not be viewed superstitiously, as if there were like some power in the hands, you know, some electricity or something like that. No, it's really a picture biblically of, um, of, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It's a picture biblically of sort of sympathy and connection. In the Old Testament, at sacrifice, if you were going to sacrifice a bull, let's say, you would lay your hands on the head of the bull and confess your sins. You were sort of transferring your sins to that animal. Now, God forbid when we lay hands on somebody, we're transferring our sins to them. But what you're talking about is a sympathetic connection there. You're coming before the Lord, praying for that person, not just saying, Lord, this is their need, but you're saying, Lord, this is our need, because you're identifying right along with them. So, it's wonderful, it's good, it's a biblical pattern, but it should never be viewed in a superstitious or a strange way, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, Next question comes from Jordan. Jordan asks this, there's a lot of racial tension in the world today, animated political disputes and complex issues. As a Bible scholar, can you give biblical insight about the issue of race? Jordan, it's a very interesting question because people talk about race on a scholarly level in different ways than in previous generations. I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong ways, but they talk about race being something that is not even really real It's just a social construct. There's some ideas about that that I kind of understand and get. There's other ideas about that that I don't really understand. But really, I think that biblically speaking, the thing that has to be emphasized is the unity that we have in the body of Christ. Paul, writing to believers in Ephesus and beyond, I really do think that the letter to the Ephesians was a general letter, not just written for one congregation. But Paul, in writing to the Ephesians and beyond, said that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I love the phrasing there, because we don't achieve the unity of the Spirit. If there's another brother or sister with which I am divided from, And there could be a whole lot of reasons why we're divided. Maybe we're divided because I am in error. Maybe we're divided because they are in error. Maybe we're divided because we don't speak the same language. Maybe we're divided because we're of different economic class. Maybe we're divided because we have different political opinions. Maybe we're divided because we have different races or different racial backgrounds or different ethnicities, whatever it would be. The important thing to see is that God has made me one with that brother or sister. No matter what their race, no matter what their economic class, no matter what their education, no matter what nation they grew up in, no matter what 
theological error they may have. Now, again, this doesn't expand infinitely. They have to be a brother or sister. They have to believe in the foundational things in Jesus Christ. Or no matter what theological error I may have, again, as long as I'm within those bounds as a believer in Jesus Christ. Look, they're my brother and sister. I look at some people sometimes uh, online and social media. Let me tell you, that's not necessarily a good way to get to know somebody. I, I always remind myself that what you see about somebody in social media isn't necessarily who they really are. Some people are better than they appear to be on social media. Some people are actually worse than how they appear to be on social media. But what you're seeing on social media isn't necessarily them. But sometimes I look at people on social media and how they represent themselves, and I go, man, they're weird. They're weird. But they're my weird brother. They're my weird sister. And they may be my erring brother or sister. They may have some things wrong theologically that are not good for the church and need to be challenged and need to be spoken against, but still, they're within the bounds of being my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. So, that's really, um, Jordan, where I would put the emphasis. And I don't know, I, I have been so blessed in my life to spend time with believers from all continents except Antarctica. I, I did get an email once from a guy who thanked me. He was able to use my commentary while he was on stationed in Antarctica, but I didn't really connect with them other than just by an email. But I've been able to connect with people in Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, South America, Australia, North America, all six continents except for, of course, uh, Antarctica, and just have had the most wonderful fellowship with them. Different life circumstances, sometimes different languages, sometimes different opinions on things. But we believe in Jesus. And listen, it it really helps if they take the Bible seriously. Of course, it's hard to be a genuine Christian and not take the Bible seriously. But there are some people who are true believers, but they are in error about some things. So anyway, that's the emphasis I would give to you, Jordan. So thank you for that question. I'll just add one more thing. Look, we are not more of a Christian or less of a Christian based on our degree of theological correctness. Now, I'm not saying theology doesn't matter. No, these things need to be talked about. They need to be discussed. And there are limits. Anybody who denies that Jesus Christ is Lord, they're not a believer at all. Anybody who denies that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, they're not a believer at all. Anybody who denies basic biblical truths, not a believer at all. But within the camp, the group of believers. We're not more or less Christians, more or less sons or daughters of God because of our theological correctness. I know it feels like that, and practically sometimes it works out that way, but I mean, in effect, it's not. So here's what I'm just saying. All folks out there who think that I'm too fundamentalist, too dogmatic, too charismatic, too uneducated, too this, too that. Listen, you're stuck with me for all of eternity. That's all there is to it. I'm a child of God. I'm born again by God's spirit. I'm going to heaven. And if you're going to heaven, you're stuck with me. So we may as well try to learn how to get along. And that may mean you trying to correct me, me trying to correct you while on this earth. But at the end of it all, You're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you, providing you're a genuine Christian born again by God's Spirit. Thank you for that question, Jordan. Next question from Melody says, Ezra, in hoping to restore Israel back to God's command 
of do not marry foreigners had all the men who intermarried separate from their wives. But wouldn't that be wrong to divorce? Melody, yes. Um, look, I've done some research on this, but I I'll be honest with you, I can't remember the conclusions. Um, what Ezra did was a one-off. Um, these were people who had married pagans in direct disobedience. And, and so I, I think just a different standard was applied to them. I don't think that this gives us uh, a, a pattern for which to follow. And the, the bottom line is, is that it was ineffective. That's sort of the crazy thing about it. You find at the end of Ezra, he's getting after these uh, Israelites who've come back in the land and married pagans and is very strict with them. Then later on in the book of Nehemiah, which takes place after the time of Ezra, they're following the same practices. So it didn't solve the problem, I guess is what I'm saying. So I would recommend you take a look up at my commentary. I also do have a video here on the YouTube channel about uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I, I think that that might be helpful for you to look at too if you want sort of a deeper look at that. Thanks for that question there, Melody. Uh, B. Kerasi says, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says that Jesus emptied himself. What do you suppose he emptied himself of? Well, B. Kerasi, that's a good question. Uh, it's important for us to understand what Jesus did and did not empty himself of. He did empty himself of the privileges, or let's just say some of the privileges of deity. When Jesus added humanity to his deity and came and walked among us, he came as a real human being who experienced the same limitations that human beings feel. Now, it wasn't because Jesus had to feel it. In his divine nature, he would have never felt those things. But setting aside those privileges, he experienced them. So, the Bible says, He that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, Jesus became tired and slept. And he, he accepted that as a limitation to his as part of his human nature. Same thing with the hunger and thirst of Jesus. Jesus' sleep, Jesus' fatigue. These are just one examples of ways that Jesus laid aside the privileges, some of the privileges of deity. Now, here's an important thing. It's important to understand that Jesus did not empty himself of deity. Here's kind of a general principle. If someone is God, they can't stop being God. That's just one of the aspects of the nature of deity. If you're God, you're God. You, you have no beginning, you have no end. You're eternal, truly, in the fullest sense. So, you can just simply say from that that Jesus never stopped being God. And some people get this wrong. There's some pastors or preachers who speak in a very sloppy way about the incarnation and the nature of Jesus's humanity, giving people the impression that Jesus did actually sort of almost push the pause button on his deity. No, he never stopped being God, but he did lay aside some of the privileges, some of the prerogatives of deity in order to fulfill the divine plan, the plan of his father, and to truly experience the weaknesses and limitations of humanity. So I guess that's the way that I would put it there. Um, B. Kersey, I would say that Jesus set aside some or many of the privileges or prerogatives of deity, but he did not empty himself of deity himself he couldn't because he's God and that aspect of the divine nature can't end, so to speak. On to the next question, Chris, Chris Jones asks, 
Is belief in hell a major or minor issue? Uh, You know, Chris, I would say that there's all gradations about this. And I, I would put a belief in hell sort of on the middle scale. It's not minor. Look, look, what we understand about hell really relates to what we understand about divine justice, about God's right, God's prerogative to judge, about uh, many, many things are tied up in this idea of what divine justice is. Uh, it, it also affects our evangelism. And people argue that it affects it in different ways, but it, it, it's not a minor issue. But neither is it an ultimate issue. Look, there have been people that I think have been definitely believers and people that I've learned a lot from who I think were wrong about hell. Um, If I'm correct, John Stott, a great commentator. I appreciate John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts. Here's his book of the spirit, the church, and the world Uh, The Message of Acts. Great commentary. Highly recommended. Uh, To my understanding, John Stott was an annihilationist. He he didn't believe in hell as it is traditionally conceived in Christian theology. Now, I think John Stott was wrong about that. And there's all sorts of gradations of how wrong a person can be about hell. So, I, I would put it as somewhere in the middle. I think a person can be wrong about hell and still go to heaven. I do believe very much so you're going to see John Stott in heaven. That's kind of no doubt about it. But it's wrong to regard it as as a minor issue. I would just throw it somewhere in the middle. If you're talking about a scale of one to ten, where, you know, one is kind of the most inconsequential thing, ten means heaven or hell rests on it, I would put... Uh, the biblical understanding of hell to be somewhere like a six or a seven. A a little bit more than right in the middle. Hope that's helpful for you there. That's just my opinion on it. Uh, Next question comes from Chad, who asks, what do you make of Jesus never specifically calling himself a king? Yet that was what he was charged with at the cross. I find it interesting. Chad, I I don't know. You know, maybe there's not a specific verse where Jesus says, I'm a king, but it's hard to get more specific than what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate when Pilate directly asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I have a kingdom. I am a king. It's just my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king, just not the kind of king you were expecting. When Jesus received praise on the triumphal entry, those hosannas were charged with sort of a political atmosphere. They were receiving Jesus as king, Messiah and king. So, I think Jesus was, as you point out, very careful with how he presented his kingship, mostly because many, not all, but many of the Jewish people of his time had a very, I don't know what you want to say, worldly idea about what Messiah the King would be and do. For them, number one on their list, for many Jews, not all of them, but many of them at that time, the number one thing that Messiah the King would do is boot out the Roman oppressors. And matter of fact, that's kind of how you would know he was the Messiah. The one who boots out the Roman oppressors, he's Messiah and King. Which well, just didn't come to do that in his first coming. So Jesus was admittedly cautious about how he presented his kingship. But when he was directly asked if he was a king by Pilate, he was careful in his answer, but he did not deny. He said, I have a kingdom, and it's not of this world. Kind of staggering to think that above the head of Jesus was that statement. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, 
written in Hebrew or Aramaic, Greek and Latin. So the whole world would know. So if there was any reservation on Jesus's part with that open declaration of kingship, it was because of the misconception of what that kingship meant in the minds of many of the Jewish people of that time. Next question comes from Second Exodus, who asks, are you familiar with the Second Exodus teaching? Instead of the rapture theory, we will experience a second exodus greater than the first. Um, I'm not familiar with it. So I guess maybe I'll make it a point to look that up online and see what I can find. I'm not familiar with this teaching. Um, So that's something for me to look up, but no, I I really can't speak to it because I'm not familiar with it. But thank you for that. I I take it just from your username that you have an interest in this and uh, maybe I'll make it a point to do a little bit of research on that. Tyler asks the question, are selfish or self-righteous thoughts that pop up in your head a sin or does it become a sin when you linger on those thoughts? Well, Tyler, really, we have the distinction between temptation and sin. You know, we we really do have choice about what we think about. And there are thoughts that pass through our heads that are sort of presented to us as a temptation. And it's really up to us whether or not we will take those thoughts and hang on to them and whether we'll hold on to them. That becomes the sin when we choose to do that. So I would I would put selfish and self-righteous thoughts in that same general category. Um, to linger on those thoughts is really the manifestation of sin. When we choose to to hold on to them and to sort of, so to speak, turn them over in our minds. Let me go to the next question here from Let It Slime, who asks. In regards to the speaking of tongues in a church gathering, if it is being done incorrectly, contrary to what is written in Scripture, how would you recommend us to bring it up to the leadership? Well, let it slime. I would just say bring it up humbly, uh, but with your Bible open and say, hey, elder, pastor, congregational leader, I'm not quite sure on this. Can you explain to me why we have public proclamation in tongues without even the attempt or the hope of an interpretation? It's just sort of let it rip and out there. And this doesn't seem to be according to biblical order from what I read in 1 Corinthians 14. By the way, I would recommend my commentary to you on 1 Corinthians 14. I, I think that I do a fairly thorough job of walking through that specifically and how that might work in a church meeting. But I would bring it up humbly. I would bring it up directly. Now, in some classic Pentecostal theology, I'm not saying all Pentecostal theology, but in some parts of Pentecostal theology, they make a distinction between speaking in tongues and one's prayer language. And this is what they would say. They would say, well, speaking in tongues is regulated according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and any other passage. But your prayer language is not regulated. You can just let that rip anytime. I believe that that is an artificial and wrong distinction. I don't think that distinction exists in the scriptures. There's not two separate things, a prayer language in an unknown tongue and speaking in an unknown tongue. It's one and the same. And so when it comes to congregational meetings, just sort of the let it rip thing, I think isn't beneficial. And it's fair enough to speak humbly to a congregational leader about that. Now, what if the answer isn't satisfying? Well, sometimes we have to accept things in a church that we know aren't biblical or aren't good 
because this just happens to be the best church in the area that we can belong to. We're not out trying to look for a perfect church, uh, just one that is biblical enough, so to speak. And sometimes we have to sort of tolerate, so to speak, things that we don't really like in a church uh, simply because it's the best kind of church available. Hope that's helpful for you there. Um, Next question comes from the God of Silence. What is the difference between pride and progress, arrogance and truth? Well, I don't know what the difference is between pride and progress. They kind of seem to be different concepts. But arrogance is sort of a form of pride. And truth, you know, that can be in a different category altogether. Um, Somebody can be proud of their progress, arrogant about their believed progress. Pride can affect anything. That's sort of one of the great insidious aspects of pride is it has a way of infecting everything. There's nothing good that can't be upset in some way by pride. Um, Arrogance, I would just call a form of pride. So um, that's just basically how I'd answer that for you there. God of silence. Um, Julie Gregory asks, why don't most Protestant churches nowadays keep the fourth commandment? I'm not saying keeping commandments will save us, but when our hearts are right with God, shouldn't we be obedient to all ten commands? Well, Julie, I I think what you're speaking of there, there are different ways that different groups have numbered the Ten Commandments, but I think what you're talking about there is the Sabbath day. And and why don't more Protestant churches nowadays keep the, the Sabbath day as a commandment of God? Julie, the most direct way that I could say this is because we're not required by God to keep the Sabbath in the way that it was kept under the Old Covenant. The Bible specifically says, in Colossians especially, but also intimation of it in in Hebrews, that the Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's a very real sense in which every day for the believer is a day of Sabbath rest, a day when we cease from the works of attempting to justify ourselves and we rest in Jesus Christ as his person and work has justified us by faith. Colossians specifically says that the Sabbath was a shadow and the substance is found in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't change the the truth that God has designed us to need a Sabbath, something I'm not very good at. But, Julia, I just want to... I'm not trying to call you out or, or, you know... I, I guess I am challenging you a bit on this, but... There is not any substantial difference between the Ten Commandments and all the Mosaic Law. We can't be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, and and I know you're not trying to say that we could be. And the Ten Commandments do provide important moral guidance to us, But every one of the Ten Commandments is reinforced in the New Testament except for the Sabbath day. Where instead in the New Testament it said, let no one judge you in regard to your observance of festivals or feasts or new moons or Sabbaths. Because these things were a shadow of what was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, we are certainly free in Jesus to keep the Sabbath. You know, there's a Christian group that goes by the name the Seventh-day Adventists, and they're very strong on keeping 
the Sabbath, Saturday, as the Sabbath, as their seventh day, and they're, they're very firm on that point. All I can say is, God bless them. We are free in Jesus. And so because this is not a point of moral obedience that is reinforced directly in the New Testament, the Sabbath law is not binding upon believers in the same way that it was upon people under the Old Testament law. So that, that would be the best answer I could give you there, Julie. Um, now, l- let me add one more thing. I think it would be good if there was wider observance of the Sabbath. We lived as a family for seven years in Germany, and one of the things that we had to get adjusted to in Germany is that for the most part, all businesses and shops and stores are closed on Sunday. There's a few exceptions, a couple days a year. Uh, But for the most part, on Sundays, the only thing that's open are uh, restaurants and gas stations. Pretty much everything else is closed. You can find a pharmacy, of course, here and there, but even though there's not many of them. So, coming from an American culture where it's like seven days a week, 24 hours a day, some kind of store shop is open, it's buy, buy, buy. That was kind of hard for us. How can we go to the grocery store on Sunday if it's not open? It, It was an adjustment for us to begin with. But man, after a while, it was awesome. There was something wonderful about a culture that slowed down and stopped. Now, they don't do this in Germany out of any great zeal to keep the fourth commandment or the law of God. No, that was something rooted in their past traditions. Today, being largely secular, it's really more a matter of trade unions and, and labor laws. But nevertheless, it's still a good thing. So I'm not anti-Sabbath. I'm just trying to be real about the level to which it is required for believers under the law. Okay, let me get on to the next questions here. Um, Amy asks, could you upload your lectures on Spotify as well? I've been trying to play them on the go. Uh, Amy, to my knowledge, we do have a lot of content on Spotify. Um, I, I don't know if it's all up there, but I think we do. Search for Enduring Word. And please, Amy, if you can't find certain things that you want on Sabbath, uh, Spotify, I almost said Sabbathai. That's not that. Uh, the last question was about Sabbath. If you can't find questions, uh, material you want that you know we have, but it's not on Spotify, contact us. And we'll get busy about putting it up on Spotify. We want to be on as many platforms as we can. Hudelezo uh, asks, is God still rejecting people? Well, Hudelezo, uh, it depends what you mean by that. God is still judging people. Romans says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. God... God does not approve of sinful, rebellious, defiant behavior, and judgment can come as a result of it. Now, if you call that God rejecting people, fine, but God's God's arms are open to everybody who's repentant. To all who will repent and believe, God's arms are wide open. God will reject no one who repents and believes in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, especially what Jesus has done in his, on his work on the cross and in his resurrection. Next question. I'm kind of getting through these quickly. DNG Ministries says, it seems like a lot of the body is being led recently to do more house churches, study groups, instead of going to established churches. What's your opinion on this? DNG uh, Ministries, I, I would say it this way, is that um, the Bible says that an important part of the Christian life is fellowship, communion, koinonia with other believers. And that should be happening in a Christian's life. Now, again, I understand there may be all sorts of reasons why for certain people at certain times it's 
impossible for them to do that. Or, or let's just say very difficult. for. I, I understand all that. But we just would say that's not ideal. The ideal is every believer has a true place where they get together with other believers to worship God, to pray, to hear God's word faithfully preached, to receive uh, communion, the Lord's Supper together, to baptize people, and to encourage one another unto love and good works. That's something for every believer. That's just sort of the New Testament. Paul never did evangelism without also planting churches. So this idea of fellowship. Now, the size of the fellowship, the location of the fellowship, that can differ from time and place throughout a culture, throughout history. There's nothing wrong with house churches except, let me say this, DNG, um, I've run across more than a few house church people who were unnecessarily critical and dismissive of what they would call institutional church. They thought, we're more holy, we're more pleasing to God, we got it going on more than the institutional church. And look, I'm the first one to admit that there's plenty of problems with institutional church, but there's also lots of problems with house churches out there. One is not inherently any better than the other. They both have their advantages. They both have their problems. I don't see anything wrong with larger numbers of believers gathering together for prayer, worship, fellowship, encouragement, the word, uh, the Lord's table, all that. I don't have any problem, see any problem biblically with larger groups getting together and doing that. And there's no problem with smaller groups getting together and doing that. It's just being real that there's uh, benefits and potential problems in either scenario. I, I think house churches are great. Just don't go around thinking that you're automatically more pleasing to God because you meet in a house church than in a church that has its own building. One more thing. Uh, it is true that in the New Testament, virtually all the churches were house churches. Yes, there were some places where they met at Solomon's portico in the book of Acts. Uh, in Ephesus, they rented the hall of Tyrannus and met. Y- yes, th- there's those. But overwhelmingly so, the church in the New Testament was in houses. But this was not out of a spiritual impulse. This was purely practical. That's all they could do. As soon as churches, as soon as Christian communities were allowed to build and have their own buildings in the Roman Empire, they did. And that begins to my quick recollection around the middle of the second century. So it's not like they said, oh, we're gathering at homes because it's more spiritual. They gathered at homes because that's all they could do. And praise the Lord, it didn't hinder the work that God wanted to do in the slightest, as has been true in many situations in church history. All right, we're over time just a little bit, but no problem. I'll finish up with the last question from Grace, who asks, my mom prevents me from getting certain action hero figures, carnage and venom, she thinks that it opens doorways to demonic influence and minimize suffering in human life. Your thoughts on this, please. I'm using my mom's account. Well, graced or graced son or daughter. I don't know if you're, uh, if you are the son or the daughter writing to me here, but um, child of graced, let me just say, look, I think the important thing is you got to honor your mom's wishes in this. You know, you're, you're, God has put you uh, under the authority of your mother in, in the years of your... I, I'm trusting your uh, child of grace uh, that you're not a 32-year-old who just happens to live at home. Nothing wrong with that. And you're asking about that. I mean, I, I'm assuming that you're a minor living at home under the authority of your parents or at least your mother. And Grace, I, I think you need to respect that. There are liberties that perhaps we can have and use when we're on our own 
that we don't have and use uh, when we're under the authority of our parents. That's just how it is. Look, I, I, I told my kids when they were in our home, you're not getting a tattoo when you live in my home. If you want to do it when you're out on your own and under your own thing, that's up to you. That's between you and God. But when you live in my home, you're not getting a tattoo. And they didn't. When they moved out, all three of them did get tattoos. Not crazy ones, but, well, not generally not crazy ones, but they got tattoos. But again, that was between them and God. But in my home, as minors under my authority, I had the right to dictate that. And so um, I can't give you an objective thing, whether or not that action figure has some kind of spiritual connotation to it. But I would just say that it's enough for you that your mom's concerned about it. And you should just recognize that. And I, I, I am genuinely sorry for you if it feels kind of oppressive to you. But I, I would just want to tell you, in the big scheme of things, it's very minor. And when you're out on your own and can have your own household, if you feel that God gives you the liberty to do that, you can have as many of those action figures as you want. That's how I would answer that question. A child of grace. All right. Hey, everybody. This is the last word from me on these Thursday afternoons in the year 2022. I pray that God gives you a wonderfully blessed new year. Thank you for praying for my mother-in-law. Would you please continue to keep praying for her? She's at home, got released from the hospital, uh, was able to be home and be with family on Christmas. How beautiful that was. Uh, but you could keep praying for her. She's at home and recovering. Her prayers for her are appreciated. You just say, uh, Lord, pray for David's mother-in-law in Sweden. Her name is Gunnar, if you want to pray for her. So thank you. Thank you to those of you who pray for the Ministry of Enduring Word, those of you who support at the year end, we kind of have a year end uh, campaign, we call it, asking people if they'd like to prayerfully donate. Check out the video that we have on our YouTube channel. Uh, we'll try to put the link in the details. Uh, the video we have with the 2022 report, I would love for you to hear about what God has done in and through the Ministry of Enduring Word in 2022. Let me just say, Though I am very blessed by the reach that we have on YouTube, um, we're getting up close to 100,000 subscribers. I'm blessed by the reach we have on YouTube. God has given us a far greater reach on other platforms. And it's just kind of mind-blowing. So anyway, thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, come on back and join us, God willing. And if we live... I'll be back with you next Thursday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.